are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White and joining me today is Carmen Perry for another of our exclusive COVID-19 sequestered podcast episodes. Yeah, I think they're exclusive because we just can't get anybody else to air them. <laughs> well, they might air them, but uh, they're not going to share them quite. quite it sounds time. nice when you say air. It's like we're back in like 1982 or something. <laughs> like, Man, know. if 1982 me knew what 2020 me would be doing. Whew. Whew. It was not. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about that. Ronald Reagan's in the White House. Yeah. When was the Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh man, don't uh, it was before that, but don't uh, let's not do this. Let's not uh, let's attach my history. Um, for today's show, we I think we're, we wanted to pick up where last week left off. Um, um, I had been asking you a bunch of questions to assist uh, marketers in evaluating uh, a website and thinking about uh, their web presence at a deeper level. And I know that we touched on accessibility during uh, last week's show. But uh, we didn't really kind of, uh, as the kids say, unpack that as well as we could have, I don't think. I, I'd say that's right. I don't know if the kids say unpack. I haven't heard my teenage kids saying that. They probably but, don't, oh, you I know. Can. Yeah, they don't say it at all, do they? <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, okay. Well, old white guys say it, uh, <laughs> if uh, this is an example. Uh, but let's uh, let's see. So let, let's talk about it further. Because... Um, Look, I've heard you complain uh, an, uh, enough about how uh, marketers approach accessibility. Uh, so um, let's just get some of that complaint out in the open. What are the biggest problems that you see and or things that people just aren't doing that they should be doing? Sure. So I, I think, uh, you know, last week we talked a bit about um, the issues with contrast on websites and, and how there are um, guidelines to be used to ensure that any text that is on the site is fully legible to those with no vision or low vision. Um, and I mean, you know, as well as I do, you've worked with a lot of designers. We love like subtlety <laughs> in foreground, background relationships, you know, like light gray on white. It just looks great to a designer's eye, but it's it's not legible. Um, it doesn't have enough contrast. And, and the uh, website content accessibility guidelines or YCAG outlines exactly what those specifications should be you know, around uh, the amount of contrast and how much, you know, the foreground text should contrast with the background. And there's different levels of this too. I mean, you've got AA, which is kind of the, the current de facto standard, I'd say. And then AAA adds an even um, greater requirement for contrast. So, you know, small text needs to have an even larger um, degree of contrast. There's additional guidelines within AAA around um, accessibility for those with cognitive disabilities as well that, that needs to be kept in mind. But, uh, you know, from a, one of the easiest things for a marketer to check would be to install a contrast checker in their browser and have a look at their website and just see how it, how it, um, how it actually manages that, you know, is it? So is that available for free? Like a, what, what would be a free contrast checker? Yeah. So there, there's a number of different ones out there. If you just Google WCAG color contrast checker, you'll find, um, a, uh, 
you know, a number of different options. There's plugins for Chrome and Firefox and Safari and all the other browsers. So you can just readily click on that and it'll tell you exactly, you know, how much contrast there is in the different sizes of text. And it, it looks at that and uh, also can show you if there are issues for people with colorblindness as well, because that's something that you don't necessarily think about. You know, the, a combination that can be good for, for low vision people may also have issues if color is the only thing that's actually being used to distinguish between, you know, and create hierarchies of information. Um, so yeah, you want to consider size, weight, um, color and all of those different things when when you're looking at contrast. And uh, before we move too far away from it, you mentioned AAA versus AA uh, standards in website uh, content accessibility guidelines. Um, uh, it, would the AAA come into play for more like uh, government online service design and things of that sort, whereas corporately more the AA is the um, the selected standard? Or am I missing something? I. I don't know that you can necessarily suggest that one is for one group and, and the other is for a different group. I think it's more that, you know, as um, more and more organizations adopt um, uh, technology to ensure that their sites become accessible and that they actually implement these things, each successive um, tier of accessibility guidelines is meant to address additional things that weren't able to be addressed because they don't want to carve off too much so that people just simply cannot actually implement these things. So really what we're talking about is, you know, AA came out a few years ago, AAA is more recent, and it's going to continue to get a more and more stringent as we address different uh, concerns and needs of the disabled population. Very cool. Very cool. That's, that's incredibly helpful. So, um, uh, beyond contrast when it comes to accessibility, what are some of the other uh, mistakes marketers make? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is that we don't necessarily consider that we need to provide alternative content for rich media. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, anybody who's uh, ever put content into a website before and added an image to a, to a web page in a, in a, you know, in something like WordPress or whatever, you would have seen a box for the alt tag. And what alt stands for in this case is alternative content so that those who can't see the image, people who can't see the photograph, diagram, whatever it is, should be able to read a description that explains to them what that image is and what value it's adding to the content on the page. And what's really wild about this is that um, a lot of social media tools also have the ability to add alt tags. Um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn all have the ability to add this alternative text for any image or video that's uploaded to the, to the site. The same is true with your own website. And I think this is probably one of the places where um, accessibility often falls down because, you know, when your agency helps you launch your new site, all of the content is in there, it's all been tested and checked, and, and perhaps all of those alt tags have been put in place. But going down the line, 
as more and more time goes by and new content editors might get trained at your organization, you're not necessarily paying as much attention to the alt tags. And that's where um, a lot of the accessibility starts to fall off is when uh, people have to maintain their own site. They don't necessarily know what that tag is for um, and aren't necessarily paying attention to it. But it really is providing alternative measures for rich media is really one of the biggest things, you know, and that goes into captions and videos so that, uh, you know, people who can't, uh, can't hear can follow along and read, uh, transcriptions for audio files and podcasts, for example, are, are, a, a measure of alternative content and anything that you can do there to actually make that content more accessible to people is, uh, is a huge part of that. And you'll often see that. And in fact, I mean, you sent me a, uh, a tweet over the weekend of, uh, you know, an accessibility nightmare. And I think it's a really interesting story. So why don't you share that? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because we're really talking about accessible communications, not just about accessible websites when, when, when we bring up this example. And I think it's, you know, there'd be a lot of marketers out there that have been putting out communications around their firm's COVID-19 response. Um, and, um, and in this case, so this example was um, actually a um, a reporter for uh, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation uh, up here in the Great White North. Um, so it's a state-owned broadcaster um, who um, is reporting on locally here in, in the city of Halifax that there had been a, a, a pizza establishment uh, where there was a COVID concern. So the local health uh, department was putting out an alert that anybody had that had been to this particular uh, pizza establishment to get takeout or what have you uh, over a, a X number of days uh, should uh, uh, monitor their um, condition and uh, potentially get tested for COVID. So um, uh, all that to say, um, the reporter tweeted this information, um, but the, the information, the, the, the meat of it was contained in two images in the tweet that you could had to read. And I noticed, um, I mean, I think the tweet was maybe five minutes old when I noticed somebody had replied to them saying, I'm blind and I don't know which uh, restaurant is being mentioned in this warning. Can you tell me? Um, so I responded and let them know. Um, but it was just, a, it just brought it home to me. Um, when we talk about accessibility, it's not just about uh, YCAG standards. It's about you know, somebody actually in their community uh, potentially not knowing which restaurant to, um, you know, not, not basically not knowing which public health uh, advice to follow because they're not getting, uh, that information isn't accessible to them. And uh, to your point, Jeff, I guess an alt tag would have just uh, taken care of that. Absolutely. And, and I think it's something, you know, as we try and share more information via social platforms and a lot of people extend their ability because, of course, you have character limits on Twitter and, and things like that. So they try and extend the um, usefulness, shall we say, of the content that they're sharing by taking screenshots of, of larger bodies of text and sharing that instead. But really what they're doing by not making that content um, native to the platform, they're actually making it inaccessible to those with disabilities because they're also not then taking the opportunity to add the alternative text for that image. And and we've seen this uh, more than in just images um, and more than in just social media. Uh, we've also, uh, I guess, in some ways, the, the battle against the PDF has been part of this as well, hasn't it? 
Absolutely. And I mean, you will recall we had an initiative a number of years ago. I even presented a paper on it at uh, HubSpot's inbound conference uh, that we called Kill the PDF. And uh, PDFs are an absolute nightmare for accessibility. They're very difficult to add the appropriate structure um, and information. Screen readers have a really hard time with them. Um, even normal everyday people trying to navigate a PDF um, on a mobile device, uh, you know, you can like picture somebody trying to zoom in to read the body copy in a, you know, in a PDF brochure or something like that. Like it's just, they're not great for, for anything accessible. So, or for any content that you actually want people to be able to consume, I guess. So, I mean, we, we've certainly been railing against them as a, you know, the sole way of providing eBooks and instead have been working with our clients and, uh, and for ourselves as well, and converting all of that content into accessible web pages instead, um, providing a PDF download as a, as an option, but not making that the primary vehicle for that content. It's a, it was a funny um, uh, experience, I must say, because in coming out with Kill the PDF, I don't mind telling f listeners that as the as a marketer, you know, we thought we were pretty clever. Um, and uh, and then the first and most often complaint we got was, yeah, but I still want a PDF though. Um, so we've had to make the uh, the accessible web page have a, a PDF download option as well, just to serve both masters. But I think it's actually worked out quite well, and um, it makes that content uh, much more accessible to uh, to uh, like I said, uh, disabled visitors or what have you. No, quite right. And I mean, in this case, we're actually adding functionality back for uh, for folks who don't necessarily have disabilities so that they can access content in the format that they prefer. That's that's how I would say we're doing it. And, uh, you know, and there's a, a standard tool in a marketer's toolkit these days. Um, ebooks pdf downloads is something i guess I, my bet my, my bet is most people just don't think about uh, of course that's how an ebook format will be done yeah yeah exactly and i mean there are certainly benefits to the pdf format from a printing perspective and all of that but really at the end of the day you know the the web has come a long way and the the reasons that we used to use pdfs because they provided more um, capability from a layout perspective and, uh, you know, the ability to brand it exactly how we want it. Uh, those were a lot of the excuses we as designers used for why we needed PDFs instead of uh, integrating content into a web page. Those have largely evaporated at this point. It's probably the same arguments you all made to, to support uh, Flash for a long time. <laughs> oh man yeah no and, and as someone who not only used flash but also taught other designers how to use it, it it's a dark period in my history i'd rather not talk about it <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll scrub past that um, yeah well i will say this you know back in 1999 had the uh, macromedia shockwave site of the day um with uh, yahoo and uh, and with macromedia you know so we were, we were big in the flash thing but uh, we moved past them so for all of you listeners out there that are under 35, um, I'm not even going to try to explain what Macromedia, Flash, or Yahoo is. Um, <laughs> so, 
Are your digital marketing efforts bringing in too many junk leads? Stop wasting time and distracting your sales team. Account-based marketing can help give your marketing strategy the laser focus on qualified buyers that you need to increase your pipeline velocity, close more deals, and grow your business faster. We've created a sample manufacturing ABM plan to help you get started. Download the sample manufacturing ABM plan at bit.ly slash sample ABM. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash sample ABM. Beyond accessibility uh, and uh, and the uh, the accessible communications, as we, as we were talking about, and kind of alternative um, content for rich media. Um, are there other mistakes we ought to be aware of or things we ought to be keeping in mind as marketers? For sure. And and I think, you know, one of the, you know, when it moves past just being accessible and, uh, you know, ensuring that our sites are available for all users, whether they um, are, have uh, normal vision or low vision or, or a hearing disability or any of those things, you know, there are things that we often do as marketers that render our sites to be a bit more hostile toward the user and more about our needs as marketers rather than the needs of the people who are arriving at our site. And I, I think, you know, we're all somewhat guilty of that. Um, you know, the, some of the worst offenders are the, you know, email newsletter pop-up that generates the second you load a page just as you're trying to read that content. I mean, that is a, that's a user hostile thing to do. And, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Marketers do this because, well, you know, when I added that in, I got a 0.1% lift in our conversion and number of people accessing the newsletter. And and that that may be sometimes, although I would say that my experience hasn't necessarily been that these things actually convert better than, uh, than uh, more appropriately placed um, CTAs. But I think that, you know, this idea that we need to provide as many ways into the, you know, into our funnel, as it were, using um, conversion pop-ups and ad pop-ups and all of those things, they're not really thinking about how that's going to be perceived by the user who's just looking to get some content, just looking to get some information and looking to get a job done. You know, how many people are going to bounce from the site as a result of something like that? They may not go right away, but it probably doesn't put a great taste in their mouth. I, look, I, I I can't disagree with you. I mean, I think as a just as a user of the web, uh, you get frustrated by this. But at the same time, isn't the fact that it's so ubiquitous now in some way make it um, uh, a less severe offense? I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've been around the web a long time, so I tend to be a little bit more of a purist about these kinds of things. But the one thing I would say is that there are ways to do this that are inobtrusive that are still going to garner enough attention that you should be able to kind of draw somebody to that if they find that interesting you know maybe don't have the pop-up load as soon as the page has completely drawn instead wait till they scroll halfway down the page of the content and then slide it into the margin this is especially problematic on mobile devices where you know a pop-up will come up for either a newsletter sign up or to uh, get the app version of that site or, or whatever that happens to be and it completely impedes your ability to do the job you were trying to do so i think if we can do this in a way that is going to draw some attention to the action that we would like people to perform while still allowing them to kind of 
browse and navigate and read and consume the site without being completely blocked, then I think it's an acceptable thing to do. When we start to completely cover the whole page with it or, you know, have multiple pop-ups going on at different times, then I, I think you're really kind of contributing to an overall user hostile behavior. And I mean, it seems like uh, to me too, what people, when people do that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to apply a, a layer of conversion focus, uh, potentially on an online asset that doesn't have any. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I think part of what you're saying is if you actually built that uh, online asset, that if you built that website with a view to it being conversion focused from the start and consider that in your information uh, design, uh, then you wouldn't have to resort to these uh, ham-fisted clunky pop-ups. I, I think you've, again, captured my words and turned them into something much more uh, palatable and understandable. Yeah. Well, we can, uh, we can just cut that piece out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, it's, they are, like, they're often lipstick on a pig. Like, you know, you'll hear, okay, our site isn't converting the way we want. Let's put this on it. Like, let's, like that's how these things often come about. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with you there. And, and I think, you know, that, that idea of empathy for the user, I mean, it's, it's very obvious when you're talking about website accessibility, you know, we're trying to be empathetic towards users of all abilities and with uh, all different types of assistive technology and so on, you know, that the same rings true. And we're talking about trying to ensure that people can enjoy and, and understand the content of the site without being impeded by pop-ups. You know, the, the other place where this kind of comes to life, and we see this a lot, especially as a, a company that works with a number of Canadian manufacturers, is you know the multilingual requirement of um, a lot of sites. It's something that is usually not overlooked necessarily, but you know, well, do we really need to provide the whole site? in French or Spanish or whatever that second language happens to be, you know, like and, and I, our position has always been that, you know, if you're going to create content in one language and you have the requirement for another language, you should provide complete parity for that content in all the languages that are important to you that your, you know, that your buyer personas and, and your ideal customer profiles are going to require. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like if um, if the money's good enough to go into your bank account, then you your marketing should be good enough to go in the native language. Yeah, of that yeah. customer, and I know that I know it's heavy lifting. I know it's a lot of work. Um, I, I understand that, and I also understand the arguments that people say, "Oh, well, the." English is the language of business in our industry, though. And um, everybody that says that, of course, is English. Um, <laughs> I, I have never, ever heard a French customer, a client of ours, say, you know, English is the language of business, therefore we're not going to do the French to the same extent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, Cantonese, uh, you, know, you know, no. I mean, they're never going to, to say that. Of course those uh, users would prefer um, an experience in, in their uh, in their language. And um, and I guess, it's, as you say, it's a demonstration of empathy, but it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, I, I don't know. I just, to me, it, it, it's almost just even more fundamental than that. Yeah, 
Yeah. So if you're going to feel good about cashing their check, you maybe ought to feel better about the marketing you're creating for them. And maybe there'll be more checks to cash if you actually produce the content in the native language. <laughs> well, I have to believe that that's true. Of course, you know, it's pretty hard to do this as a split test, isn't it? It's one of those things you have to bit believe on faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite right. Um, yeah. I, I really don't have anything else to add to that. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I mean, every, you know, if you try to test it in any way, shape or form, there'd always be a bunch of other considerations impacting that. Like it's not a, it's not at all scientific and, you know, it could be, it, it'd be very hard to execute as a pure AB as an example and things like that. But. For sure. But I, I do think, you know, and I think we can begin to um, wrap this up. There's been a lot of tips over the last two episodes about this. Uh, the last one that I wanted to cover is this idea of, uh, and this is more something about thinking about your, how your internal organization wants access to content on the website. And of course, I'm talking about the ubiquitous homepage carousel. And this is something that you can test, actually, unlike uh, multilingual sites. Um, you know, we've seen through our own testing, um, we've seen a number of studies about this. And really, it just all points to the fact that uh, homepage carousels do absolutely nothing to allow people to see different panes of a uh, piece of content on the homepage. Really, the only thing anyone ever interacts with is the very first thing they see, wouldn't you say? Yeah, all the data points to that. Um, there's, uh, yeah, in the history, I think, of uh, the deployment of carousels, um, there's never been one time when the user was actually served by it. It's always the organization trying to fool themselves, yeah. trying to give uh, equal priority to this department as well as that department, this product versus that product. Uh, yeah. And and they're often it's a game of internal politics. And either that or it's just a lazy way of homepage design um, to say, well, rather than try to communicate all that we want to communicate on this page, let's have this scrolling carousel that'll kind of do it for us rather than us have to think much harder about it. And yeah, if you look at the stats of that, like you say, I mean, always 75, 80% of the eyeballs are only on the first uh, uh, pane of the carousel. Yep, yeah, 100%. And the other problem with them too is that often they're, you know, they're they're not just uh, difficult to use. They're very problematic for users with disabilities because they don't. They're usually implemented with something like JavaScript, so a lot of that content ends up getting hidden um, and is in fact inaccessible, including the very first frame of the carousel. And uh, you know, as a result, they're they're really just a bad idea all around. There's and and even even worse, how many times have you seen it when people just have an image in there, right? So all the all the copy is just embedded in an image, and it's there's there's not even an H one on the home page, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, this is something you know. We we should have an entire episode of uh, just showcasing the futility of carousels. <laughs> Our next episode is going to be titled uh, "Stuff Jeff and Carmen Complain About All the Time." <laughs> sure. the, the audience will drop off rapidly <laughs> indeed, indeed but jeff look it's been good chatting about this again and uh, kind of uh, diving further into it uh thanks so much and uh, it's uh look forward to picking up our conversation again next week indeed thanks a lot thanks for listening to the cooler ring with carmen perry and jeff white 
Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.